from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a researcher and developer in the veritable minefield of artificial intelligence. He's joining me today to talk about his recent nonfiction work is the algorithm plotting against us, which addresses AI's intersection with art and society at large. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Kenneth Wenger. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this 14th day of September 2023. I came across your book while doing a little research on this modern day juggernaut of AI, and the cover is very striking and a little scary, so definitely stoked my predilection for horror. However, when I read it, I found a linear, coherent presentation of the basics of what AI is and is not, as well as the actual danger posed rather than the stuff of fiction. So thank you for taking the time to write the book for the layman, and thank you for taking the time to join me on the show. Thank you very much. I'm I'm glad you thought so. I tried to make it linear and as accessible as possible, so appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, so to give the listeners some information on your academic and professional pedigree, you are the Senior Director of Research and Innovation at Core AVI and Chief Technology Officer at Squint AI. And the purpose of the book is to not only explain what AI is and the basics of how it functions, but to also put into perspective what we truly need to be concerned with rather than what's sensationalized by people that are looking for ratings and clicks. The term AI is a very loaded acronym that almost automatically brings up the idea of humans being enslaved by machines. But as we find in your book, AI is a very broad term. So can you put the term AI into its proper context for us? Yeah, sure. So as you say, AI indeed is a very um, broad term. And that's because it encompasses many different disciplines within the umbrella of AI. And the basic idea of AI is you want to create an algorithm that can enable some synthetic system, whether it's a computer or a robot, to make decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so traditional AI 
or classic AI would be things like a decision tree, right? That's where you have a number of decisions. If this happens, do that else, do something else. You know, that's what traditional AI would be like. Within that realm, there's also other areas, which are things like machine learning and deep learning that you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. And then when you get into things like machine learning, again, it's also artificial intelligence because the purpose, again, is to have an algorithm that enables a computer to make decisions on its own. But it's different in that the algorithms in machine learning, you don't pre-program with a set of rules on your own. Mm -hmm. As a programmer, you don't program in the set of rules. Instead, you create an environment where the algorithm learns to discover those rules on its own. And then you have deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning algorithms, which is where neural networks come in. And then those are the most successful algorithms that we have today that are able to learn these rules on their own without us having to tell them. So for example, let's say you want to have an algorithm classify cats versus dogs. Mm -hmm. By rules, I mean the rules of what makes a cat a cat in an image, what makes a dog a dog. So what are the features that make a certain sample belong to a certain class? Mm -hmm. And, you know, in traditional AI, as I said, in classical algorithms, you'd have to come up with features that say, you know, if you see these things in an image, then the image is a cat. With a machine learning algorithm, like a neural network, there are no rules as such that we pre-program. Instead, we set up a training environment where the algorithm learns on its own to identify what are good features for cats, dogs, and so on. And so probably I would imagine what most people are familiar with would be something like chat GPT. Is that an example of deep learning? Yes, yes. So chat GPT is at its core, it's a neural network. And it's a neural network, as I said, it's a type of uh, deep learning algorithm. And it's called deep learning simply because, so a neural network is set up of a number of layers. It used to be that neural networks were a single layer models, as I talk about in the book, they were very simple. Over the years, we've learned to stack layers after layers of processing. And so because as you stack layers, the model becomes deeper. Um, that's where the term deep learning came from. But that's all it means. And these neural networks, I mean, they're not a recent phenomenon in technology. They've been around for a while, correct? That's correct. They've been around since the 60s, uh, late 50s. Could you kind of go back to its inception and give examples kind of leading up to present day? Uh, sure, of their use. Yeah, like what were they employed with that we weren't even aware that they were the driving force of? Right. So the first use case, real world use case, I should say, for neural networks, it's still in use today in many cases. It's called Madeline, and it's a neural network that was created in 1959, I believe, and the purpose of that is basically to remove noise from phone lines. So analyze mm. uh, phone signals and isolate the noise in the signals and make the voice clear. We still use it to correct signals in many cases. So that's one of the earlier examples. As far as I'm aware, the earliest example of a real world use case where we employ the neural network. But then you have to remember that there were also many decades where research in neural networks and AI really kind of dried up, as I talk about in the book, because... At some points, the hype of AI didn't live up to expectations and then research dried up. And so people did other things. Mm -hmm. But then around the 80s, there was another resurgence. And a use case from around that period was from the computer vision domain. And basically the idea was we trained models to recognize handwritten digits. And the use for that was to automate processes in the postal office. 
So sorting envelopes based on zip codes and so on. Okay. Well, what's odd to me is it seems like the first time I've ever heard talk of AI like in the mainstream where people really latch onto it is recently. Like first it started with AI art and then chat GPT. But as you said, there's been neural networks in the background running things since what you said, the 50s? Yeah, late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So why all of a sudden are we using this loaded term AI? Like it's a buzzword floating around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the reason for it is, although it existed, the idea of neural networks has existed for a long time. It's only in recent years, really after 2012, that it actually has exploded in terms of its capability. And the reason for that is that now we have much better access to computing power than we did before that. So, mm. And it came from a realization that we could use uh, a GPU. Uh, as an accelerator to run neural networks. So the problem with neural networks is that they are very computationally intensive. Mm. To get a neural network to do impressive things like um, recognize people, generate text like ChatGPT does, you require a lot of connections. So the model has to be pretty big. We're talking billions of connections, billions of parameters. And to process information through such a massive model requires a lot of power, a lot of computing resources. And prior to 2012, we didn't really have that in ways that was accessible to most researchers. You know, you would have to go to like a supercomputer and then only a few people had access to that. But after 2012, it was shown that you could use GPUs as sort of like mini supercomputers mm -hmm. to accelerate these models. And that's where research really exploded. And that's why it's a buzzword today. It's because after 2012, all this research came through and we're seeing more and more use cases of how we can employ these models in ways that, frankly, we didn't think was possible before. Well, to piggyback off of that statement, when it comes to new technology, there's always industries that are the driving force behind them because of the early adoption of the technology. So what are the primary industries adopting and driving these artificial neural networks? What's interesting is that they're... Um... Please don't say porn. <laughs> <laughs> porn is always involved in everything just leave it out <laughs> um no uh what's interesting is that th these models are so flexible so malleable that they're useful in so many different domains that there are many different domains that are driving research in ai so for example automotive companies for things like computer vision being able to assess the environment understand the environment plan the next move of a vehicle for example Companies like, you know, Microsoft and development companies, you know, computer software companies, for example, generating code, helping developers create code, fix code, test code. There's also companies that are investing heavily in things like personal assistance to help you write documents that you need to write, review documents, summarize documents. In legal firms, they're being used, as far as I know, to do research mm. on cases and things like that. So there really are a lot of different industries that are pushing for AI, and, and it's coming from many different directions. Okay. Well, particular uh, AI-driven platforms like ChatGPT that are running off of data sets that they're trained on, where do these data sets come from? Like, what's ChatGPT being fed to generate its intelligence, so to speak? 
So as far as I understand, OpenAI hasn't publicly disclosed what or the extent of how many data sets ChatGPT has been trained on. But the understanding from researchers in the field is that they use a set of data sets that are well known. NLP stands for Natural Language Processing Research Domain. And these are very large data sets. One of them is called the Pile. Uh, there's another one called the Web Crawling Data Set or something like that. And basically they are data sets of text scraped from the internet, from places like Reddit, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. Oh, okay. Well, due to the inherent nature of these programs, their output is only as accurate as their input. So, I mean, once it gets more rampant, like who's going to be the arbiter of particular things like uh, what's morally and politically correct? And is it going to vary between public and private sector platforms? When you say moral arbiter, you mean in terms of what we should allow it to be trained on? Or do you mean what we deemed acceptable as its output? Uh, I mean, I guess both. Wouldn't one influence the other? I think so. But I think there's a difference between, I think, the legal aspect of it and what people deem uh, moral. So, Oh, yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. morality and yeah. legality are two separate. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they're intertwined, but, you know, I think they can be separated. Yeah. So part of your question was whether I think there will be a difference between the public sector and uh, the private sector. And I think the answer probably is yes. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to compensation. So for example, a lot of the issues that we see today that people have with these models is that they've been trained on data that other people produced and Mm. those people are not being compensated by their use. And the problem with that is that, you know, these algorithms are able to operate at such scale that it can actually compete with the original authors of that data. And so Mm -hmm. you can certainly understand why they have a problem with that. But there is a difference between the public sector and the private sector in that the private sector can afford, in many cases, to compensate the original creators. And I've heard talks of companies like New York Times, I believe, uh, either in talks or with OpenAI, or I think I may have heard that they have reached an agreement of um, getting some compensation for all of the information that's taken from their websites. So I think that will happen more and more. I think that companies will continue to train models on data scraped from websites, but they'll have to come to agreements with the people that produce that content and have to compensate them for that. The public sector, though, you know, an individual who wants to train these models, they want to have the ability to do that. So they'll be constrained in that sense. And they'll have to fall back to either use a model that has already been trained by a company that has paid the license to do these things or risk being sued. It's my thought. When you were talking about a system to, I guess, I mean, technically receive some sort of one-time or multiple-time royalties for this original content that's scraped from the internet, would it be possible to do something like YouTube does with their content ID? Like there's some sort of recognition, there's some sort of content ID on the content. So when they scrape it, they're automatically notified that, you know, chat GPT, open AI, whatever, have ingested some of their content. So you can now issue a claim on it, some sort of a monetary claim or something like that. Absolutely. I think it's possible. I think the problem is, by the way, this is just my opinion. This is a very complicated uh, process, especially when it comes to the legalities of it and the copyright aspect, which I'm not a copyright lawyer, but my thinking here is it is possible. So your question of can 
content ID, for example, be used in isolating where the content is coming from? Absolutely. The problem okay. is that these models are not exactly copying and pasting from a source and then outputting you know, a chunk of it. So you can't really quantify, well, here was an article that you wrote and the model used 10% of the article. So now I owe you 10% of the royalty. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work exactly like that because models are kind of learning patterns and then outputting patterns that look similar. So it's very difficult to quantify how much of your data it actually used in its output. It's hard to prove mm-hmm. that it used a certain percentage. So I think it would be very difficult to estimate that based on the output. It would have to be based more on like what percentage of the data set that was trained with included your work, I would imagine. So the programs, it seems like they almost become autonomous in a way in that the people or the engineers that produce it, they're not privy to the processes behind the conclusion or how the information is harvested or used. Is that right? Like, okay, I know how it's doing it, but I don't know ultimately what its rationale for coming to a decision was or how it used this particular piece of information and either used it transformatively or, you know. Yeah. So that's more or less correct. When you say harvested, I mean, absolutely, an implementer should be able to know where it harvests data from. I mean, that okay. unless, again, if you're grabbing these data sets that are scraped by third parties, then that's a different problem. But yeah. in principle, you should be able to know where the data comes from. But once you have the data, how an algorithm for a given prediction, for a given completion in the case of a language model, how it used the data set mm. for a given completion and where it got the parts of the output, that's very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, an implementer would not be able to easily tell. There are algorithms and there are methods. And we might get to that. What we're doing at Squint, for example, is we are developing platforms that enable you to understand models a lot better, to know Mm. what's driving their decisions, what's making them output a certain prediction. But the state of the art today is that it's very difficult uh, to make Mm. those decisions. Well, so the uh, the million-dollar question that's the stuff of dystopian sci-fi novels, when people hear AI, the AI that most people think of is a general intelligence that could result in innovation, which is what would be needed in order to, quote, overpower us. So is there any program currently being worked on that could result in the innovation needed to operate as if it were, you know, somewhat, if not completely sentient? Um, I mean, that's a very loaded question because it, <laughs> <laughs> the problem with sentient is that we don't understand what sentient means. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's basically the problem. I have a series, by the way, if you're interested, I don't know if you saw it on the publisher website, I have a set of articles that I've written on it. But the problem with sentient is that, as you say, we don't understand what it means. It's hard to define it in a way that multiple experts in the fields involved there philosophy, mm. neuroscience, and so on, understand and agree on the definition. I'm going to answer it this way. I don't think that you need a sentient model mm-hmm. to get to that dystopian future, if, okay. if that helps. Yeah. I think that's secondary. I think the technology that we have already, if we're not careful with it, could certainly get out of hands because it's already creative. I mean, creativity is something else that needs to be defined carefully, but we already see models. For example, take a look at all of the Google models that, for example, AlphaGo and the ones that play Go, that play chess. Mm. Some of the moves that they make are considered pretty creative by experts in the chess and Go field. So 
I think that it's very difficult to argue against the fact that the models that we have today already exhibit degrees of creativity. Basically, mm-hmm. the idea of outputting things that we wouldn't have thought of, that we think that are new and innovative, they improve on something that we as humans hadn't seen, that already happens. And if you apply a model that you don't quite understand how it's processing information to a domain that has a huge impact on our lives, like let's say you put a model to decide when nukes should be launched. I mean, let's get really out there, right? Not that anybody would do that. Just as an example, right? That's a very exaggerated example, but let's say you do that. We could already end the world with that decision and you don't need sanctions for that. So we already have the technology to cause a lot of damage if we are not careful in how we use it. We could also use models to generate, as has been proposed, as a dangerous use case for it, you know, biological weapons, because you could train models to predict shapes of molecules that could be very harmful for humans, for example. And so build a, a weapon based on those. So we already have technology that could get us into a lot of trouble. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the programs that played Go. I was looking up in 1997 when IBM's Deep Blue computer won a six-game chess match against Gary Kasparov, who is arguably one of the best in history, I think. And from what I read, though, it seemed like it was not a very intelligent program. I think they referred to it as brute force, like it's just able to run simulations, like I can't remember if it was millions per second, thousands per second, but there is something called reinforcement learning algorithms that could basically do better in a game that requires the level of computation that that a game like Tetris would use, which I know is not as complex as chess, but uses different rules of, I guess, what would the word be? I don't know. Help me here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. Different rules to win the game, to decide what's a good or a bad outcome. Yeah. So let's go back to the 1997 example. So that's an example of an algorithm, an AI, that Mm -hmm. is a classical type of algorithm where the algorithm itself knows the rules of chess. So as you said, uh, the way that model worked is that it, it understood chess. It also had, uh, if I remember correctly, a very deep data set of games played. So it could already study and learn strategy from all the games that were played. But basically the idea is uh, you play a move, your opponent plays a move. Now you check your board against all the possibilities. And there are famously millions of possibilities in chess. So you try as many possibilities as possible and you figure out what is the best one and then you pick the best one. And that's how that model worked. Mm-hmm. But it already knew chess. Reinforcement learning in AlphaGo. AlphaGo is the Go version. AlphaZero is the chess version. Those work based on reinforcement learning, as you brought up. The reinforcement learning is a type of training process in artificial intelligence. So the models that you're familiar with, like let's say you have a neural network that you want, as I have given an example before, classify between cats or dogs or chat GPT, as an example. These are what are called supervised learning algorithms. So in the case of a cat versus dog, it's a supervised algorithm because typically the way you train that model is you have a data set of images that are labeled cats or dogs. You train the model by showing it images and you tell it, look, this is an image and this is an image of a dog. Now there's another image and there's an image of a cat. And you do that thousands of times and eventually the model learns 
to extract features that are relevant for dogs and cats. In the case of ChatGPT, for example, the way it works is you give it a chunk of text and then you want it to predict the next best word in that sequence. And because you have a bunch of sequences, you can ask it to predict the next best word. It predicts it when it's wrong. During training, you know what the right answer should be and then you tell it and so on. And after thousands of times, it gets to learn good probabilities for what the next best word should be because you can see that from a training data set. In the case of reinforcement learning, there is no training data set. So, um, and the way it works is basically, you can think of it as you have an agent, you have an environment, and then you have some kind of reward. So the agent is the algorithm, is the thing that's trying to learn how to behave in the world. And so the environment has certain rules. The agent doesn't know anything about the environment. So let's say in the game of chess, the environment is a chessboard and the agent is the player, right? Mm-hmm. And all you have to tell it as the developer of this algorithm is what are the kinds of moves that it can make? No rules, but like, you know, you can move a piece left, right, or so on, right? You have to give it the rules of what are the accepted moves that you can make in an environment, and that's it. Then what happens is you let it play games on its own thousands of times. There is a reward function that gives it a reward when it makes a good move and penalizes it when it is a bad move. And what you want to learn with reinforcement learning is a policy that produces good moves. That's really what you want. And the policy in modern algorithms is usually a neural network. It's what learns that policy. So basically, given a game, once the model is trained, that neural network is giving you moves that give you a good reward. Mm. In the case of chess, it's very difficult to explain how it works because the reward function is very complicated. But a much simpler example to think about it is, let's say you want to use reinforcement learning to teach a car how to drive on its own. The idea is, you know, just let the car go in a simulator. And then if it makes a left turn and it falls off a cliff, then it gets penalized. If it moves a certain number of meters without a crash, that's a reward and so on. And the idea is if you do this many, many times, it'll crash many, many times, but eventually it'll learn what is a bad policy, what causes crashes, what causes extended periods of zero accidents, and it continues to do that. And so that's what reinforcement learning is. So the reward it gets, I guess, you know, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, like a digital dopamine hit. But <laughs> the reward it gets is like a uh, just some sort of a recognition that, oh, yes, this is right. You want to keep doing something that leads to this. Correct. In games, usually a reward function would be like the score of the game. So something that increases mm-hmm. the score is a good thing. Something that minimizes the score is a bad thing. Gotcha. But reinforcement learning is probably the toughest of all training mechanisms to understand or to implement. And it's because designing a good reward function is very, very difficult. Because sometimes, especially in chess, it's very difficult to know when a move is a good one mm. because it may look bad for the next five moves, but it might open something yeah. and moves ahead. So it's very difficult to create a reward function that actually recognizes what a good move is and doesn't penalize it. Yeah, sometimes a good move is sacrificing a piece. Exactly. <laughs> Which... Exactly. Yeah, it's not very cut and dry. Yeah. Well, so 
one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show and one of the main reasons I'm sure a lot of my listeners would be interested in your book is because of AI's intersection with art, namely graphic design and writing, which we've already alluded to and discussed a little bit. And a friend of mine sent me some articles on a few different small presses that were accepting short story submissions for AI generated stories. Like they were like, yes, this is okay. This particular submission is for AI, I guess, generated, assisted, whatever stories. But then she sent me another article about a sci-fi magazine that actually cut off all submissions after receiving a flood of AI generated stories, which were obviously supposed to be original material. So I know there's more than chat GPT available for writing. I'm not familiar with them. I've just kind of, you know, did like a Google search and I've uh, seen some of them referred to as writing assistant and I know there's editing software that will, you know, edit your manuscript for you and things like that. So how far in the creative writing process, specifically fiction, are these programs able to go without human input? Because I know they have to be prompted, but how far can they just take a, a small prompt and run with it? So they can go pretty far, but it depends on what you're trying to get out of them. So for example, if your goal is to get, like, let's say you're working on a letter, some form letter, or um, let's say an ad for a job description or something like that, you could ask it to write you a whole letter, a whole job description, and it'll do a pretty good job. And then you just have to align it to exactly what you want to have in there. But most of the boilerplate text will be there and will most likely be accurate with current models. If you're talking about like, write a full short story or a full book, that's more complicated. I find that even state-of-the-art models today, the longer you let them go for without human intervention, the more likely they are to go off into repetitive sections and nonsensical sections. It might still be coherent, but it may not make a lot of sense. And the reason for that is that we have to think about these things are language models, they're not world models. So the grammar may be fine because that's what they learn. They learn how to write text that is grammatically correct for the most part. What they're talking about may not make any sense, right? They may be talking about things that defy physics or that you just can't happen in the real world. So the likelihood of that to happen increases as the depth of the text increases. So the longer you let them go without intervention, the likelihood it is that they'll go off the deep end. Would that be the same for something that involved less, I would assume, involved less creativity, like a nonfiction book, like say a book on World War II, for instance. There's a data set of historical fact and you prompt it with, you know, I, I don't know how complex it would be, you know, write a book about World War II or write a book about World War II detailing the rise of the Third Reich and, you know, maybe some other stuff. Would it be able to write something that people would want to read? That's a very interesting question. So I'll say this. First of all, it depends on the data set, right? So let's assume the data set is balanced so that you have equal number of World War II text in your training data set as you have fiction, okay? Mm. So that we're not talking about a biased data set. There's a lot more examples to learn from about World War II than there are about, you know, some fictional stories. Yeah. Let's say it's the exact same thing. So it has equal chance to learn any genre. This is really something that should be tested. This is kind of like a, a scientific question. So I don't know the answer, but I can tell you my thinking here. 
I would suspect that it's more likely for it to make mistakes if it's talking about a historical. Really? If it's writing about a historical, yeah, than if it is about fiction. And the reason for that is that there is more possibilities to go wrong because a historical set of facts happened. Mm-hmm. And so now when you're asked to write a book about World War II, it has to be accurate, not just that what it talks about can happen in the real world. It has to have happened. Whereas mm-hmm. if you ask it to write about fiction, it's less constrained because it just has to be able to happen in the real world, but it doesn't have to have happened. Mm-hmm. But, but when you say... Not even necessarily, it could be supernatural horror, it may not even have to... Sure. Agreed, yeah. yeah. So, but when you say, well, let's talk about a historical piece, then it's constraining that it has to talk about that. And if it deviates in any direction, the likelihood of a mistake is higher. Mm. Okay. It's interesting. Well, so is the main goal of AI, I suppose, in any regard to act as a tool or is the end goal to do the work for you? That, you know, I really like that question. And I think that it really ties into the previous question you just asked, because I think, again, this is a purely an opinion thing. I can tell you what I think about it. I know some others disagree. My opinion is that AI should be a tool. It should not be the end goal. I think as humans, one of the miracles of life is that we get to explore nature mm-hmm. and the world around us. And we get to try things, invent things and, and create things. And we can use tools, right? This is what makes us humans, is the fact that we are able to create tools. This is what separates us from other animals. We create tools that are very sophisticated, uh, I should say. And I think AI is a tool in that sense. If we move into the realm of now we become a tool for AI and AI has their own agendas, I think that would be very Nobody wants sad. to be a tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I walked right into that one. Um, <laughs> but it would be a sad future where we're doing AI's bidding and it's their agenda. I think we need to be the masters here. We need to set our own goals and we can use AI to fulfill that. And I think that ties into your previous questions because I think a fundamental question there is, do I even want a algorithm to create books for me to read? And again, this is a very personal opinion, uh, but for me, I'm more interested in art created by humans. Now, I think eventually, even if we can't do this today, I think absolutely it is possible and it will happen where we will have models that will create very compelling, very good books, as well as, you know, any kind of art, paintings, it doesn't matter. In any creative field, I believe there is no reason to think that AI won't be able to achieve those things. Whether I want them to, whether I'm interested in that, I'm I'm more interested in human output in the arts. Well, that leads perfectly into my next question, because I'm sure, as you said, there'll be something that can write some pretty compelling fiction. But during this uh, writer strike that's going on right now, one of the picket signs that became famous was one that said AI didn't have a bad childhood, meaning that, uh, you know, artists, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of artists typically are people that have suffered in their lives and usually have dark past driving their creativity. So would you say something as logic-driven as tech could ever be a threat to something as emotion-driven as art? I mean, obviously, it can get to the point where it's really good, but is it going to be able to reach the level of the art produced by a human that seems to me that one of the reasons that 
art produced by humans is so great is because humans are flawed. Machines are not. I mean, I guess they can be corrupted in some way, have corrupted software, but... I mean, I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer is yes in two different ways. First of all, AI algorithms in general can monitor us and they can learn from us to tune into the things that compel us. We're not that difficult to decode. And it is possible and it will be increasingly possible for models to understand us to the level that they can create things that we find funny, that we find touching, that will make us cry and be emotional about it just because they understand what makes us tick in those directions. So I don't think that's a problem. At the same time, I think that even without having a bad childhood or without imitating humans that have had a bad childhood, I think it's possible for algorithms to tune into some dimension, especially in the individual arts, that we just happen to like. They could generate something that maybe has nothing to do with that kind of soul, you know, where it comes from struggle. Maybe it comes from a different area, but we would still find it compelling. So I think it's possible. I don't think that's a problem. I think the more interesting question to me is whether, again, we want that, especially with the case of the strike. You know, I am fully immersed in AI. I'm a researcher. This is my day-to-day life. I think there's good use cases for AI, and I think there's bad ones. I find that good use cases are where the potential benefit will outweigh the cost of using a model. And in every use case, there will be a cost. You know, we will be losing jobs and we will be disrupting the status quo. But in the case of, let's say, writers being replaced by algorithms or actors being replaced by deepfake, by virtual actors, I just don't see the benefit. I think I'm on team human, you know what I mean? Like for me... (laughs) If it is as good as an actor, as a human actor, then why not just have a human actor? Hmm. I'd rather, you know, not lose that job. Hmm. Um, That's my thought on that. Yeah. Well, like you mentioned, historically, technology has taken away some jobs, but then given birth to new industries that create more jobs. But with the rapid acceleration of AI, this question kind of eats its own tail. So bear with me. Do you think that inherent nature has a particular balance or do you think that it's possible, especially with AI, for technological advance to outrun the need for human resources, resulting in massive industry, but no one to consume it because too few people are able to afford it because of the loss of gainful employment from the same industries? Um. Well, I mean, I think almost by definition, that probably can't happen because then it would collapse, right? I mean, if there's such massive unemployment that there is no money to go around, then we can't afford to build the companies that will basically create this massive industry. So I think it has to go hand in hand. However, that doesn't mean that jobs can't go away almost entirely. So if we go back to the book, in the book I mentioned that I suspect that new jobs will be created. Just like after every industrial revolutions, we have always generated jobs. And although job markets shift, we don't end up with a net loss of jobs. I suspect that will still be the case with AI. But even if that's not true, even if that's wrong, and there is a massive automation where we really don't need 80% of, let's say, the human workforce. 
I feel like it is on society's benefit to figure out what to do with a population that's unemployed. And I know there's been a lot of discussions on things like universal basic income. To be honest, I don't know what the right answer is. It's something that I've thought about. I don't have a good proposal at the moment, but I think as a society, we have to decide what do we do about those that are disrupted, regardless of whether or not it's the case where most people are disrupted, even if it's 10%, 5%. We need to be able to help those people that are all of a sudden out of a job because AI has taken over. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that you mention in the book is AI being used in the diagnosis of diseases. Now, is that to assist doctors dealing with complex issues or would it be more something that somebody of a lower level would utilize like a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant that works under a doctor maybe like a a step down from even them where somebody is utilizing some sort of a program to go through symptoms and do probably stuff akin to what you would go to a urgent care for Like, this person is not a nurse practitioner or a doctor. They are blank, whatever certification they require, but it's a lower level, cheaper to employ. And they're sitting down with this program, talking to somebody, and based on this algorithm's diagnosis and recommended treatment, they prescribe antibiotics or an inhaler or something like that. Mm -hmm. So again, that's a good question. I think it has many parts to it. When... In principle, I'll say that for diagnosis, there is nothing that suggests to me today that it won't be possible eventually to have models that can out-diagnose human doctors. I think it's completely within reach of AI. I think it is possible because it's a factual question, and it is about learning to understand patterns of disease and be able to make predictions of those patterns. So I think that that's absolutely what AI does best. So I think that definitely it's within reach of being able to not only do it as well as doctors, human doctors actually out-diagnose them. I think whether doctors in general can go away, if that's really the question, can AI eventually completely replace doctors? I'm hesitant to say yes, because I think it isn't just always about knowing what the right answer is. Well, not necessarily replace doctors, but it seems like healthcare, they're creating more and more positions that are branching off of doctors. Mm-hmm. to where, you know, a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant handle the standard stuff and the doctor gets involved if it's something severe. Like if there's now AI involved, would that be further diluted to where the ratio of trained provider to supervising position would be even thinner? I see what I mean. Yeah, I think the answer is yeah. I think definitely, for example, I can see where AI models can be used, as I said, to diagnose certain conditions in a patient. And then the doctors come in, they're involved in basically looking at the AI's decision just to give the human approval. This really comes down to trust, I think, more than whether you factually need that. Where I definitely think that it becomes more difficult to remove the doctor from is treatment. So I think that there's a difference between diagnosis and treatment. And treatment has usually more of a, a nuanced, even moral aspect to it that I think will be much more difficult to purely automate because it involves talking to a patient. It involves understanding more than just facts. 
it involves understanding how certain treatments feel and what might be, you know, better in the end for a patient, that it isn't just part of an equation, if that makes sense. I think yeah, yeah, absolutely. what algorithms are really good at is understanding facts from data. But beyond facts, when it comes into more like, what's the right answer here? And there may be a moral component, I think, we still need humans. Gotcha. Well, one thing I wondered about was AI in the detection of a lie, because they have polygraph examinations, which are kind of based on biological responses, but they're inadmissible in court because correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but they are used in the pre-screening of public servants like firefighters and police officers. So do you think an artificial neural network or some variation could be used to detect deception? And if so, what details could it evaluate that, you know, just like a standard polygraph wouldn't like, I guess, body language would be one of them. Mm -hmm. So again, I think this is really a research question. I think it's a very interesting question to research. Whether it's possible, I think depends on whether there are indicators in humans that tell you whether they're lying or not. And not only are there indicators, but to what accuracy, how accurate are those indicators? Yeah. And how much can you trust them? I think really that's the question. And the reason I say this is because I know there's been a lot of studies where there's, for example, FBI agents that say that they're really good at understanding when people are lying to them. Mm. And there's been studies done that are actually kind of funny because they have this confidence that they can understand when people are lying to them. And most of the time they're wrong. Really? Uh, every study that I am aware of that has been done on humans that say that they are good lie detectors, they're typically wrong. There's a book by Gladwell that talks about this. He mentions that the idea that humans and judges are very good at detecting deception is not very widely supported by evidence. But let's say that, you know, we're talking about a machine here and we're talking about, can you have a model that looks at your visual cues? So maybe if you look up a certain way, you know, you're lying. You can also hook up sensors to a person and see whether they're perspiring or certain chemicals. All of these things can be measured. And you can certainly train a model to try to find a pattern if these things lead you to a prediction of you're lying or not. Mm -hmm. But the answer of whether that's possible, really, we need to figure it out. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so kind of moving on to something that's a little different, maybe it's not different. What Elon Musk is working on as far as Neuralink, does that involve as far as the connection between this chip and the body's processes, does that involve neural networks? I believe eventually it will. I'm not sure. From what I have read, I don't think that's what they're doing right now, but I don't think why it wouldn't be able to eventually. I think what he's doing with Neuralink is pretty cool, though. I think the idea of, at least for the use cases that they're describing today, I mean, we can always get into the darker <laughs> yeah. areas of that. Yeah, when you got a chip in your brain, all bets are off. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's always, there's always bad use cases for anything. But, you know, the use cases he talks about where it's about giving mobility to people who have lost functions. And I think if we're successful and, you know, people who can't walk are able to walk, people who can't move their arms, people who can't see, maybe we'll eventually be able to see. I think that would be fantastic. But yeah, but yeah as I said, it could be misused. Well, not necessarily misused 
as far as kind of a black mirror episode, if you've got a chip in your brain doing one of the things that he's proposed, which is being able to do an internet search just by kind of willing it, so to speak, wouldn't that open you up to being hacked in some way? Yeah, yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, all of a sudden your beliefs and everything has changed because somebody's downloaded some sort of malware into your brain. Well, I mean, we already do that, though. I mean, that's the scary part. So to answer your question, yes, I think once you open an interface between your brain and the Internet, just by the fact that by definition, you have an interface that let you go from your brain to the Internet, the Internet can also go to your brain. I think Mm. that's certainly possible. The question of whether, you know, with technology, can other already manipulate you and change your mind? And uh, I mean, that's already happening. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but wouldn't a direct link, wouldn't that be just like, it's one thing for the advertising you see and the social media and news media that you consume kind of manipulating you, but like, couldn't something be directly downloaded that would just be like, there's no slow desensitization or anything like that involved. It's like, boom, there you are. Automatic behavior modification. um, I think the problem with that kind of scenario is the bandwidth, really. I mean, Elon Musk himself says that the advantage or the selling point of a neural link product is with a keyboard. So right now with technology, you have to interact with it through a keyboard, which is slow. You have to type things. It takes too long. If it's in your brain, it's at the speed of a thought. Uh, the bandwidth, the amount of things you can do is very fast. It's very quick. Mm-hmm. So to your point, yeah, I mean, information can flow in the other direction also as quick, you would imagine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, all of these things are speculation, by the way. Let me just make sure I, I caveat that. <laughs> but, but I can certainly see, given, let's say, a future where you're able to have that kind of interface, yes, there are a lot of problems that you'd have to deal with. Yeah. Well, what do you think about these virtual partner programs? Do you think it's healthy for people to have romantic attachments to AI girlfriends and boyfriends? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's, Again, this is just my opinion. Obviously, there's people who feel like that they're looking forward to those things. I think whatever I think, whatever I say right now, the funny thing about this is that we are part of the old generation already. Mm. And whatever we say doesn't matter because uh, the new generation will move to that world. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the beauty of it. The things we find comfortable today, I'm pretty sure people from you know, the 19th century would have thought scandalous. Yeah. For my opinion, I think that the sad part is that unfortunately there are people today that for one reason or another, they can't find a partner and they Mm -hmm. can't have that kind of relationship. And so they are looking forward to having that kind of outlet somehow, even if it's with a virtual world. My thought on that, though, is that unfortunately, I don't think that a product like this, so like, let's say you have, you know, those humanoid companions, it won't be limited to people who today have trouble finding the same type of relationship, it will eventually become more mainstream and then it'll be normal for everybody to do that. And I think it kind of continues to isolate our society away from human to human contact, which for me, I think that's a problem. I think instead of continuing to become siloed and more into ourselves and our virtual world, I think we should go in a different direction. So we should be more trying to connect with humans. So my opinion is, no, I don't think that's a good idea in general for society at large, but it doesn't matter what I think. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I worry about the potential black mirror scenario is from what I've read about these programs, 
they're always happy to see you. You can do no wrong. They validate everything you say. I mean, is that not a recipe for narcissism? Like, is he going to turn everybody into a self-absorbed, uh, you know, just... I mean, that's a good question because here's the thing. It doesn't have to be that way, right? You could argue, well, I mean, that's a design decision. It doesn't have to be that way. You could make it so that these companions try to push you into a certain direction. But then the question is, well, who makes that decision? Mm. Who makes them have that kind of personality? Maybe what happens is you have different kinds of personalities that you get to select from. But then somebody is deciding how to design these personalities. And eventually, this is what, going back to our previous conversation, it's a form of manipulation, right? A personality design is basically a set of buttons that I can push on a person that I know they will react a certain way and I'll get them to do what they want. Mm. And so that's really what we're talking about here is that, well, we'll create these robots that are able to get people to behave in a certain way because, you know, whether we want them to be more encouraging or to be, as you said, more like accepting, it's kind of weird to me uh, that we're, we're having, we're playing those kinds of games with people. Uh But yeah. Yeah. Well, when people find out that you're immersed in the AI universe, as far as what you do and you've written a book, I'm sure they probably like to start talking. So what is one of the craziest conspiracy theories that you've heard that they've been like, but what about this? What if this happens? Um, <laughs> <laughs> like something you wouldn't even think of, like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> well, I mean, interesting. So I'll say two things. So to answer your question first, usually the more, I wouldn't say outrageous, because when it comes to AI, the truth is that a lot of it, we still don't even know how capable it can get. Mm. And so a lot of it becomes more, it's not the right time yet. So it's not really outlandish or outrageous. It's more like we're not there yet. But around that topic, you know, Neuralink usually comes up. Is you know, yeah. can once you have something in your brain, can people start, people meaning governments, you know, somebody with power, the companies that make these products, can they start manipulating you? Can you become like their robot? Can you do their bidding? Those are the kinds of questions I usually get that, I think, are more remote. But other than that, it's mostly around, can AI become conscious? If it does, what does that mean? Could we have like a Skynet scenario kind of thing? And I think the good news on that front is it really is our decision. If Skynet ends up happening and AI really, you know, dominates the tech world and locks us out, essentially, I think it's our decision because we put it there. We would have to put it in charge of all of these systems for it to be able to become that kind of system, that kind of uh, overlord. So Mm -hmm. I don't think that that will happen. However, it is the little things. It is the little things in the aggregate. It is the little decisions that we make every day with, you know, our digital rights, our, you know, our ability to trust certain companies to make decisions for it. These are just little decisions we make every day, but in the aggregate. That's what really could get us. And that's what I worry about. Well, yeah, I was talking to a guy about this and I was saying, do you think the Matrix scenario is possible? Like, could they enslave us and we uh, basically be turned into batteries? He's like, dude, they're not going to have to enslave us. For the sake of convenience, we're going to walk ourselves right into the pots. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, yeah, I guess you've got a point. Well, so anyway, tell me about Core AVI and what you do there. Yeah. So as you said at the beginning, I'm the uh, research director at Core AVI. And what we do is we focus on implementing and designing 
frameworks for neural networks, basically for AI in general. But today, as you know, most people are interested in neural networks. So we focus on implementing systems that can run neural networks in safety critical domains, things like avionics, so airplanes, cars, medical devices. And what that really means is that when you have software that's running in safety critical environments, they have to run deterministically. They have to run when they need to run. They can't crash. They have to run for the amount of time that they're expected to run. For example, if you have a piece of software that has to run for 20 milliseconds, it has to run for 20 milliseconds. It can't take longer than that. So it's a lot of constraints like this that happen in a safety critical environment. And so what we're doing there is designing AI systems that can run in those environments that can be trusted to run in those environments. Okay. And what about your work with Squint AI? Mm -hmm. So Squint is a company that we co-founded and the... Oh, so this is like a business venture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So our mission with Squint is to build models that are self-assessing and self-correcting. So just like we talked about today for a while about models that, you know, when they make mistakes, what happens? They're not always right. The types of models that we have today, when they work really well, they're fantastic, but they make very silly mistakes often. And the interesting thing about it is that they don't know when they're making mistakes. In fact, they can make a very high confident mistake in the same manner that they make a very high confident correct prediction. So what we're doing is we're building models that are different in that they can actually tell when they are wrong. They can have a certain level of doubt and self-assess and self-correct. Gotcha. Well, are you involved with robotics at all? And do you think they have a role in society outside of utility? Um, I'm not involved in robotics personally, but the question of whether utility, what do you mean exactly? I think. Well, I mean... We've got virtual girlfriends, I mean, oh. and I'm, I'm not going into the weird realm. I'm just talking about like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the way families have pets, you know, mm -hmm. oh, this is our robot, Dexter, <laughs> you know. The reason I ask that is because I can't remember who it was exactly. I was listening to a podcast and they were talking to a guy that worked for the company that makes the Roombas, mm -hmm. you know, the little vacuum Mm -hmm. bots. And he said that people got attached to those things and gave them names. And when they'd send them in for warranty work, you know, they'd be too messed up. They'd call them and say, hey, this is a kind of a loss. We're just going to send you a new one. They'd be like, no, no, I want you to fix Frankie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm not surprised. I mean, we get attached to anything. That's the thing about humans is that we get attached to anything. And just quickly back to the whole sentient thing. Things don't even have to be sentient for us to feel like they are often. Mm. So I'm not surprised by that. And I think that that's just natural for how we behave. With respect to whether there is good use cases for robotics in a utility kind of domain, I think the most compelling one that I've ever heard of is companion robots, but in a different sense, is robots that try to help people who have trouble with mobility or the elderly in cases where they don't have anyone. You know, these are robots that eventually, as it's described, they'll be able to help you around the house, clean for you, reach objects that you can't reach, drive you to a place if you can't do it. If you're in a wheelchair, move you to a certain location, take you to a doctor, bring you back, talk, speak with you. I mean, humans need contact. And if, mm -hmm. if you don't have anybody, somebody to talk to would be nice as well. Again, I mean, first of all, I think it's sad that it gets to that point where you need a robot. But if you are there anyway, mm -hmm. I think that's a good alternative. Yeah. Well, do you plan on continuing to write? Maybe try your hand at horror? 
I can have you back on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be back on the show anytime. I, um, yeah, I, I plan to continue to write. I'm still staying for now, I think, in the popular science domain. Uh, I'd love right, to no write horror. <laughs> I'd love to write fiction at some point, maybe some horror. <laughs> I love reading horror myself. I'm a big fan of Lovecraft and Stephen oh, King. Yeah. You said but, the magic word, Lovecraft. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan of horror. But no, I don't have any plans to write horror yet, but maybe one day. Gotcha. Well, you revealed a little bit. What is the life of Kenneth Wenger like outside of writing and technology? I love to read. I love to read historical fiction. It's one of my favorite subjects. I also like to read popular science books about other fields that are not my own. But I love historical fiction. It's one of my favorite subjects. I love horror. And I like to cook. I like to barbecue and cook for family and friends. That's one of the things I enjoy. I have two kids and my wife, and I love to hang out with them and and cook with them and barbecue and go for hikes and, you know, just regular stuff. Nice. Well, Kenneth, it has been fascinating talking with you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. I had a great time. Absolutely. Well, so as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Uh, just my book is The Algorithm Fighting Against Us. You can get it on Amazon, the publisher's website, which is workingfires.org, www.workingfires.org. And that's it. I'm a researcher, AI researcher, as well as an author. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Be happy to talk to you. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Kenneth, thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday when I will be joined by an emergency room physician that brings her unique perspective to the serial killer thriller. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
Shit.